So, we're having a look at Daniel chapter 4, chapter 5. Peter's preaching 4, 5 and 6. Just 4 and 5. So, we're going to jump around a bit. It's in the in our Pew Bibles on page 1,343. Uh, and I'm going to be reading different sections just to to make the reading a little bit easier. So... I'm going to start with chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and then I'll let you know as we change. So Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who lived in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miracles, signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Down to verse 9. I said, Belteshazzar, or Daniel, as we may know him, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpreted for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree and in the, in the middle of the land, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches from, its every, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in the bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field let him be drenched with dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed by for him so if we jump over to chapter five ah sorry no, 24 to 32. So chapter 4, 24 to 32. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is Daniel speaking. And this is the decree the Most High God has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. 
Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the oxen. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the most high sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Let's jump over to chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. He's talking now about his son. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and of iron, of wood and of stone. Suddenly the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to the to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I'm going to jump over to verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and will tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant, hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. 
He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the oxen. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, has not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets of his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. Here is what the words mean. Meeny, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, good morning again, everyone. I'm, I'm decided I'm just so I can sort of see what's going up there a bit easier. When I put it up, make sure I do it right, I'll go at an angle um, this week. Thanks, Damien, for that uh, long reading. I decided to read a fair bit of 4 and 5 so I could sort of assume it on the way since we're covering such a lot of ground. And so I'll be chopping between the chapters um, as we go along. Um, there's no outline in the booklet today. I wasn't far enough ahead of time to get that in, um, but I'll be revealing it uh, as I go. So you can write it down if you like um, in uh, that space. <coughs> What's the most bizarre thing that you've ever seen? Well, from reading the papers this week, um, it seems that some might think that the election result last week was the most bizarre thing that they'd ever seen. <coughs> Many thinking it unexpected, quite unexpected, in tears, etc. If you looked uh, at the scores in my golf cart last Thursday, then you might think some of that was pretty bizarre too. But seriously, today we come to uh, events related about the two kings of Babylon um, and Daniel that one would have to say are truly bizarre. Are they not? One regarding Nebuchadnezzar, a powerful king who goes insane and ends up behaving like an animal for, it seems, about seven years. The other king, Belshazzar, has the experience of seeing a hand suddenly appear on the wall and start writing stuff. 
with a message the king didn't understand. That would be enough to unnerve anybody, I think, no matter who you were. Truly bizarre. And though chapter 5, verse 2, says that Nebuchadnezzar was the father of Belshazzar, Belshazzar was his son, that's probably not as we might naturally read it today. That is, we think of fathers or sons in biological terms. But the Babylonian records that we have at the time show us that Belshazzar's biological father was in fact Nabonidus, who came between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So the text is probably using the word here, father and son, later on or throughout the chapters um, here, like it does in many other places in the Old Testament and particularly in the genealogies to mean something like predecessor or in the same line um, along the way. It skips generations and things um, like that. And you might notice if you've got an NIV and you look at chapter 5 verse 2, there's a long little note um, in the margin that says predecessor or um, that sort of thing. Uh, Belshazzar in fact is probably something like 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now you see that tells us something about what the writer is doing in these chapters. He's put these two stories together but it's not because they occur sequentially but because of their theme. Belshazzar will come up again, you see in chapters 7 and 8. If you go further, when we get down to there, you'll see that he comes up again the first year of his reign in chapter 7, the third year of his reign in chapter 8. Um, even though by the end of chapter 5 he's dead. Right at the end of chapter 5 we're told uh, on the very night he dies. Now the writer has put these two stories together because of their theme. It has to do with him and pride, that is pride and, oh, uh, right, I've done something really bad there. Where are all my slides, friends? <laughs> they were there last night. We're in real trouble if that's not true. Pride and humility before the King of Heaven. Um, the other thing that should be noted about these two chapters is the way they begin. Up to now, you see, we've seen a master storyteller who develops each chapter with a certain amount of suspense before revealing the final outcome of the particular event. Chapter 3, with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and the, and the furnace, etc. Um, but chapter 4, notice that the opposite is true. We come, uh, we're given the outcome, if you like, of this chapter um, before the details of the event. So in verses 1 to 3, and you'll need now to uh, follow in your Bibles if you have them, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is of chapter 4, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Uh, Mike? Yeah, not looking good. No. 
Um, I don't know whether you can do this, but if you can go back to last week's service, they might be there. Yeah, I can check that. Okay. Next week's? <laughs> I put them there last night. I probably put them somewhere strange. Why the sudden change? See, why the change from this suspenseful writing to uh, let's tell you everything, the conclusion at the beginning um, before it happens? Because we'll go back in chapter 6 to that sort of suspenseful way of writing again with Daniel on the lion's den um, next week. I think once again it's because of theme. The theme we see through these chapters is announced in the first three verses. It's one that would have um, been of great comfort really to the faithful Jew who is in exile in difficult circumstances and to each of us really who live in the chaos of our world today over against all measures of human pride and power we see um, in really the most bizarre way yet and powerful way the sovereignty of the most high God the sovereignty of the most high God and Nebuchadnezzar has certainly undergone some sort of revolution in his attitude, hasn't he? He says in verse 2, It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to tell all nations and peoples of the earth about this. Now, if we put together what is said about uh, this theme in both chapters, we can summarise it like this. First, the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. We've now seen how at the end of verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar says God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel adds to this um, when in chapter 5, verse 21, he recounts Belshazzar what had happened to him or what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar and how Nebuchadnezzar had finally acknowledged at the end of verse 21 that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar goes a little bit further at the end of chapter 4. Having repeated what he'd said in the beginning about the eternal nature of God's kingdom, in verse 35 he says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? In other words, God's sovereignty is demonstrated by freely distributing power and judgment as he wishes. You see, the Most High God is accountable to no one. The peoples of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does with us as he pleases, at his whim. No one can hold back his hand and say, what have you done? As if somehow God must account for who he is and what he has done. He can do what he likes, he does what he likes. Now how do you feel about that? For in our world, isn't that the very thing that we fear? A despot? with absolute power, an organisation like ISIS that kills indiscriminately men, women and children at their whim, even like the recent shootings at Christchurch, which are taking place, as we know, in nearly every part of the world now. 
does not the absolute sovereignty of God put a shiver in your bones? Well, only, friends, if you fail to acknowledge who he is. Only if through human pride we think power comes to us because of our might and our intelligence. Only if we put ourselves at the centre of the universe and think we are the most important people out there. This is what both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar did. So the account of these stories begins with a declaration of the sovereignty of the Most High God. It is what each of these kings must know, must know, but the stories themselves illustrate only too well the dangers of pride, of human pride. And, those, and though these two incidents are separated, as I said earlier, by time, by some substantial time, the writers put them together to show in the most powerful and bizarre way just how dangerous before the Most High God, this temptation to human pride is. Let's take some time to just review the pride of each king and its corresponding consequences. <coughs> well, first in chapter 4 we see Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant declaration and subsequent insanity. In verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now notice where pride often finds its source, where Satan so easily catches us unawares. We're cosy, self-satisfied, comfortable. Life is good. Just then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It disturbs his comfort. It terrifies him. In his dream he saw an enormous tree Strong, going up to the sky. It was everything a large tree should be, could be. Beautiful, leafy, fully laden with fruit, providing for the animals and the birds, for every creature. So far, so good. But then a messenger coming down out of heaven calls for the tree to be cut down, the leaves stripped, just leaving a stump in the ground. Bad enough. But then there's even a further weird twist. In verses 15 and 16, the messenger continues, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plains of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Most people think seven times pass means seven years. This part of the message surely is what terrifies Nebuchadnezzar because of the change to the personal he, him, he, there in those verses, he may have had an inkling that it applied to him. Indeed, after the magicians can't interpret the dream, the king calls Daniel to interpret the dream. Daniel confirms what the king may have suspected. It's about him, sure is. He is the tree. And he is going to live with the animals and become like them. But the stump, you see, means that when the king acknowledges the sovereignty of the Most High God, his fortunes and kingdom will be restored. 
We're not yet told the reason this will happen to Nebuchadnezzar, but we soon find it out. It's human pride. Some 12 months later, the king is wandering around on his rooftop, surveying the wonders of his kingdom. And of course, the wonders of the kingdom of Babylon at this time are quite fantastic and magnificent. And he declares in rhetorical form in verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Whoops. Immediately, a voice from heaven declares that the details of the dream he had 12 months earlier dreamt will come to pass and so it does. The danger of human pride. The idea that what we, what or who we are, what we have, how we might be gifted in this area or that is because of our own prowess, our own benefit, for our own benefit rather than the gift of the sovereign God to be used in his service. It immediately reminded me really of God's words to his people via Moses before they ever went into the promised land in Deuteronomy 8. Moses reminded them, the people, that God was bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. They would lack nothing. They would prosper and become wealthy. But as they prospered and became satisfied, there would be a great temptation to become proud and to forget the Lord. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, Moses gave this timely warning. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to our ancestors as it is today. It seems to me, friends, the temptation towards pride in a wealthy and prosperous nation like ours is everywhere. We're not immune to the call to take our eyes away from God and clearly place them on ourselves. A few decades ago, the life insurance company National Mutual, which doesn't exist anymore, I think it was taken over by AMP, ran an advertisement which said, the most important person in the world is you. Some of you who are as old as me might even remember it. The most important person in the world is you. And I think we've just gone on from there. Today the call is to concentrate on improving our self-esteem, glory in our human achievement, protect our rights, We tend to laud those who are rich. We pay our sports stars huge amount of money even when their moral character is clearly quite bankrupt sometimes. Parents love to hear and argue that their children are gifted. For some reason that seems to be important. Making their children valuable out there in the world. Now there's nothing of course 
wrong with success in business or sport or politics, even being successful at being the pastor of a church. But the danger is that we can so easily forget God and become proud of how good we have become in this or that. When Meredith and I were bringing up our children, one of the things we made it our aim to teach our children was to remind them of this sort of truth. We knew that sort of given the gene pool of the two of us together meant that our children would probably have above average intelligence and um, possibly some sort of giftedness. (laughs) Don't laugh. We knew the world would likely value them for what they could do or how smart they could be. Even the Christian world sometimes, unfortunately. And we knew they'd be tempted to have pride in themselves and their abilities. And so we made it a definite aim to teach them that whatever abilities they had were God's gift to them. To be used in his service and for the benefit of others. In a land flowing with milk and honey, living in the magnificence of Babylon in the 6th century BC, it's easy to become satisfied and proud. Forget God and think life is all about you. Well, the consequences for Nebuchadnezzar's pride in himself are catastrophic. He was driven out of the city He grew hair like feathers of an eagle, which probably means his hair was long and became so matted together that it looked like feathers. And he ate grass. We might say he suffered from some form of insanity. The text doesn't say that he became an animal or even that he thought he was an animal, only that he had the mind of an animal. Is it possible? Of course, questions get asked like this all the time. But in fact, in this case, it seems so. Commentators have pointed to a disease called boanthropy or lycanthropy, if you know, I'm sure you know the definitions of those straight off, um, where a human being thinks himself or herself as an ox, a dog or a wolf. According to one writer, it's rarely seen today because the mentally ill are less likely to be wandering around the countryside. From being the most powerful man in the world, he is reduced to roaming the open countryside like an animal. Now we know that Nebuchadnezzar does recover and I'll come back to that a bit later. But the news is not so great for our second example, is it? The dangers of human pride. In chapter 5, we see the fate of Belshazzar, as I said before, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors. And what we see here is a bit more serious. We see Belshazzar's blasphemy, idolatry and subsequent death. Belshazzar appears quite suddenly on the scene and it is literally at the end of his reign since historically we know the Persian armies were outside the city at this time. An attack was imminent and we're told at the end of chapter 30 at the end of the chapter in verse 36 that that very night Belshazzar king of the Babylonians was slain by the Persians 
by the Medes and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, in the face of this imminent danger, Belshazzar holds a great banquet. Fairly odd, it might seem at first, for a thousand of his nobles. Why? Well, almost certainly I think it was to rally the troops, <coughs> his fighting forces, and to shore up confidence in the Babylonian gods to protect them. Obviously not a good job there. Hence, while they are drinking wine, Belshazzar takes the lead in what can only be described as a serious challenge and denigration of the God of Israel. The God of a captured people, you see, over against the the gods of the Babylonians. First we see here an act of blasphemy. The king calls for the gold goblets taken from the temple of Jerusalem to be brought in and he distributes them to his nobles, wives, concubines to drink them. Now, friends, I don't think this is because they ran out of cups to drink from. This was an act of blasphemy, using holy and sacred things for common use. But such blasphemy was made even worse by outright idolatry because while drinking from these sacred and holy things that belonged to the God of Israel, the king and his nobles praise and worship the Babylonian gods of gold, silver and bronze and iron. His fate was sealed at that moment. We read in verses 5 and 6, Suddenly the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This bizarre event goes on to record what we've seen many times so far. The king's wise men cannot interpret the writing. The queen, probably here in reality the queen mother, tells Belshazzar about Daniel who interprets the writing as prophesying his downfall, a downfall occurring that very night. Human pride, in this case, led to an arrogant use of the holy things of God, not simply for common use, but for use in the worship of other gods. And the problem for us today, I think, is that we we still tend to see blasphemy in these Old Testament terms. using God's name in vain, defacing churches, crosses and other objects that symbolise God's presence among us. But friends, with the coming of Jesus, all that changed. In the Old Testament, there was a sharp distinction between holy and unholy objects, clean and unclean things. But with Jesus, all that ceases. It's not that nothing is holy anymore. Just the opposite. Everything is now holy and set apart for the service of God. This was anticipated in the Old Testament in a passage like Zechariah 14, 20 and 21, which says, On that day, when speaking about the future worship of God, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house 
will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. Every pot. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. No more sacred pots and pots for everyday cooking. All pots will be used for cooking. The Old Testament division between the sacred and the profane will be no more. That's why the Apostle Paul, you see in what we looked at last week, Romans 12, can urge us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Why he both describes the the gathered body of Christ like us here this morning and each individual Christian believer as the temple of the Holy Spirit. No more temples, no more goblets, no more holy things. We're it. Temple of the Holy Spirit. So the sin of blasphemy can be illustrated this way in the words of one writer. Such an understanding intensifies the concept of blasphemy. Blasphemy is not just defacing a church or a cross. It's a misuse of any part of God's creation. An assault against a fellow human being is an act of blasphemy. After all, we are all created in the image of God. An angry word spoken against a fellow believer is an act of blasphemy. After all, Christians are all temples of the Holy Spirit. The destruction of the environment for selfish purposes is an act of blasphemy. The land, the air, the seas are each the creation of our holy God. You see, in this sense, the temptation towards blasphemy is everywhere. So a story like this alerts us to its seriousness. But also what I've called thirdly and finally the way of redemption. You see Nebuchadnezzar does recover doesn't he? He may have suffered the extreme consequences of self-satisfaction and pride but in his experience we also find what is necessary to repair our relationship with God when we find we've wandered down this same path. One of the interesting elements of these two chapters is the difference in the attitude of Daniel to the two kings. With Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is reluctant to tell the king the meaning of his dream because he knows it's not good news for the king. In chapter 4 verse 19 we read, Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversities. To your adversaries, sorry. But with Belshazzar, there's no such hesitancy or lament. Why? Because Belshazzar should have known better. The experience of Nebuchadnezzar should have served as a warning to humble himself before God because of all that had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5 verse 23 we read, Instead, this is Daniel speaking to him, Instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you. 
And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in your hand life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand (coughs) that wrote that subscription. The world today, friends, knows so much more than Belshazzar did about the Most High God. God's Son has physically entered our world and risen from the dead. God has left us with clear instructions in his word of his love and preparation for a future. There is a way of redemption that can avoid judgment looming over the self-absorption of human pride. We see it here in the response of Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4. Humble repentance indeed brings restoration and exaltation. Daniel had first wanted the king, had first warned the king before all this happened to him at the conclusion of his interpretation. In chapter 4 verse 27, Daniel says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. But Nebuchadnezzar ignores Daniel's plea until after he has experienced God's dreadful judgment upon his pride. But fortunately, he finally came to his senses. In 4.34 we read, At the end of that time I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. A few verses later he states that his honour as king was restored even greater than it was before. The raising of his eyes to heaven is obviously an acknowledgement of the superiority and sovereignty of God. It is his humble recognition of this that restores his fortunes. And so in a way we come back to where we began in chapter 4. With the sovereignty of the Most High God over all kings, nations and people peoples on the earth. For us now living after the coming of Christ, surely this call for humble repentance before God leads us to think of the way the sovereign God has humbled himself for us in his Son. That is, to also think of the humility and exaltation of the King of Kings. As Philippians 2 5 to 11 states, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, I think our culture today is pretty much saturated with the display of human pride. <clears throat> we see it in the, in the call to glory and human achievement, self-fulfilment, doing your own thing, standing up for your own rights, improving your self-esteem. We also see it in the blasphemous way people live, not just taking Christ's name in vain as if it meant nothing, but in the misuse of God's creation and gifts evident every day. Even as God's people, we know we cannot escape the guilt and shame of behaving this way at times ourselves. But the sovereign God whom we serve has overcome our shame and turned it into rejoicing with a joy that should be far greater than ever Nebuchadnezzar experienced. For God has taken a shame, our shame, that shame, upon himself through his son. Jesus felt God's judgment on such shame for all those who acknowledge, humbly acknowledge their shame in repentance and faith. That we might know the joy of being exalted forever with him. As it was for Nebuchadnezzar, surely it should be our greatest pleasure also to announce to anyone who would listen the wonders of what the Most High God has done. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two stories today put together in the book of Daniel in chapters 4 and 5. Bizarre as they are, yet so relevant to us today in a land flowing with milk and honey where self-satisfaction and pride are so evident, confidence in our own ability and a lack of acknowledgement that you are the sovereign God who's given us everything. We pray for ourselves here today, Lord, that you may help us, strengthen us through your Holy Spirit, um, particularly if we're gifted, successful in whatever field, to make sure we acknowledge both to you and to others that what we have comes from you. And we thank you, Lord, that when we uh, slip up in this way, we can always come back to you in repentance and faith and know that the Lord Jesus himself provides the greatest example of this for us and has taken all that shame and guilt of ours upon himself. May it be our pleasure, Father, as we have opportunity to share your great sovereignty and love for those who turn to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.